me encourage you, if you would, to take your Bible and turn with me to the book of the Acts of the Apostles. The book of the Acts of the Apostles. We begin a new evening series of studies throughout the book of the Acts, and I would like to make just a few comments by way of introduction. This book can be described as the inspired account of the theological history of the primitive church. It is the second account or narrative penned by the writer Luke. And it may be a fresh discovery for you to know tonight that Luke is the most prolific of the New Testament writers. He's written more than any other author of the New Testament, including the Apostle Paul himself, who is uh, responsible for at least 12 epistles. Uh, some assigned to him the epistle to the Hebrews, but uh, a number of scholars do not think that he wrote the Hebrews. They think someone else did. But apparently Luke is the most prolific writer of all the New Testament writers. And his account of the gospel and his acts of the apostles make up more content than the epistles of Paul. So we come this evening to the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Hear the word of the true and living God as it comes to us from Luke, the penman of the Holy Spirit. In the first book, O Theophilus, referencing the gospel that he wrote... I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. All flesh 
is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Would you pray with me and for me with respect to the ministry of the word? Let's pray. O oh, Holy Fathers, we bow in your presence tonight and we come launching into this new series of studies. Father, it is a challenging thing to do and so we cry out to you that you would be pleased to give grace uh, to your servant. I pray, O oh, Father, that uh, you would be pleased to neutralize any of my inadequacies and that you would be pleased to take this portion of your word and use it to speak powerfully and transformatively to these your dear people. We pray, O oh Lord, that this word of God would come to us in the spirit and with power. And we ask that you would do so for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ in whose blessed name we pray. Amen. In his preparatory comments, the theologian John Calvin alludes to the fact that this book is the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 3, which I read for our call to worship tonight. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. This book is a moving history and it is a challenging history of the church of Jesus Christ. Indeed, as one commentator describes it, in the book of Acts, Luke, under the guidance, the influence of the Holy Spirit, takes his readers on a whirlwind tour of some three decades of church history. It begins in Jerusalem and from there... We are brought to Judea and Samaria and to Syria, Cyprus, many cities throughout Asia Minor, Macedonia, Greece, and finally Rome. In short, Luke's account in this book follows the many outline that the Lord Jesus Christ gives us in verse 8 of the passage from which I read. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Luke chronicles for us the spread of the gospel and the planting of churches throughout those localities. So it is a moving history because it illustrates in practice what the Lord Jesus Christ meant when he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Because it reminds us of Paul's words in Acts chapter 14 and verse 22 that through many tribulations, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. You see, the progress of the church of Jesus Christ in the world has never been one of steady growth. And that is why we should never despair as the people of God. For even in the book of Acts, we witness various breaks in continuity. 
and intermittency we see of decay and restoration in the church. And intermittency, intermittency of those mixtures of things. You see the record of the progress of the gospel in the world again is not one of steady growth. But of growth mingled with spiritual decay arrested by periodic and successive renewals which we call revivals. The progress of the church of Jesus Christ in the world will never be one devoid of opposition. Indeed, it will be challenged every step of the way. And we see that in the book of Acts. We see how even today, with respect to our own news media, they make no attempt anymore to conceal their hostility to Christianity. Even from that quarter, the truth is placarded before us that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And perhaps as nowhere better, we see in the book of Acts the truth expressed by the early church writer Tertullian. To, per, to paraphrase what he said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It would be costly for us, as it certainly was for the apostles, to be counted among the number of those who are engaged in the onward movement of the purposes of God in the world. Now, as I hinted in the introduction, the book of Acts is part two of a two-part theological history. Part one is Luke's gospel. He says so as much in his opening verse. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he, will, he was taken up. And if you turn back in your Bible to Luke chapter 1 and verses 3 and 4, you see him addressing Theophilus there, the same person, who most likely was a young convert or at least a convert young in the faith. In Luke chapter 1 and verse 4, he is referenced there as one who is being catechized in the things of God. And Acts is part 2, where Luke continues to instruct Theophilus in terms of, now notice these words, all that Jesus began to do and teach. The distinction or the contrast that we are to understand here is not between the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, that is the gospel, and then the life and ministry of the church, which is the book of Acts. Now notice Luke expresses this. He says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So how are we to understand the relationship between this two-part historiography? How are we to understand it? Luke's gospel records Jesus' ministry on earth, and the book of Acts records his own going ministry from heaven through the apostles by his Holy Spirit. That's the relationship between the two. And this is why the heading in some Bibles, and it's a constructed heading, 
the Acts of the Apostles, well, that suffices so far as it goes, but not really as accurate as it could be. A better title, in my humble opinion, would be the Acts of the Risen Lord Jesus Christ, wherein His ascended glory as prophet, priest, and king of the church of God, he continues his ministry by the Spirit, initially through his God-ordained apostles, and to carry out his mediatorial ministry in the world. And this is why, for example, we should well understand that the apostles are not a continuing office in the church of God. You will notice particularly in verse 3 that Luke informs us that Following his suffering, he presented himself alive to them, the apostles. And he did so in terms, we're told, of many proofs. And it is noted later on in the chapter that as they come to the point where they're going to replace Judas, the apostate, we're told that someone had to be, verses 21 and 22 of Acts chapter 1, one who had accompanied them, the apostles, all the time that Jesus went out, in and out among them. Apostles were divinely appointed witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is why in Ephesians 2, Paul speaks of them as the foundation stones of the church. There are certain offices and gifts of the Spirit of God that were intended to be for a temporary period of time. We believe in apostolic succession, but in an apostolic succession of doctrine according to Holy Scripture. The apostles were the penmen of the Holy Spirit to record the infallible word of God. And we continue to be, you and I, the beneficiary recipients of their ministry today. Not as men who through the laying on of hands have had continued succession of other men up to the present day, such as one particular church claims but by the Spirit of God taking the apostolic scriptures and applying and ministering them to the church of God. Now the book of Acts has a very clear structure to it. Luke follows the many outline, as I said, in the language of the Lord Jesus in verse 8 of Acts chapter 1, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And then we see how Luke begins to chronicle the spread of the gospel and the planting of the churches throughout these localities. But there's a threefold progressive structure in the book of Acts. And if you or taking notes, you want to give this outline, you'll notice in chapters 1 through 7, the gospel of the risen Christ is preached in Jerusalem. Chapters 1 through 7. In Acts chapters 8 through 12, that gospel spreads outward and onwards to all Judea and Samaria. And then in Acts 13, to chapter 28, to the end of the book, the gospel extends 
to the ends of the then known world. <coughs> now what is striking is that in each successive phase where the church advances with the gospel, the growth of the church is expressed very significantly in a particular way. It is expressed as the growth of the word. And I'm going to show you how that is. You see it first of all in chapter 6 and 7 of the book of Acts. And the word of God, or chapter 6 and verse 7, the word of God continued to increase. That is the inspired commentary on the growth of the early church. The word of God continued to increase. And then as you move forward to all Judea and Samaria, you see the same thing in Acts chapter 12 and verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. You see it there again. And then you come to the third phase, to the ends of the earth, in chapter 19 and verse 20, where Luke expresses it in virtually the same manner. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. In each successive phase, the growth of the church of Jesus Christ is described as the growth of the word. Now, what is it that Luke is underscoring for us here? He is telling us that the church grows as the word of Jesus Christ in the gospel is proclaimed, taught, and disseminated. The word spread. And it is no doubt significant that in the New Testament, our Lord Jesus Christ, as we sung him tonight, is described as the Word of God. He is the incarnate Word. He is the essence of the Word that the church proclaims. The message of the gospel is a message that has a particular focus. And its particular focus is Jesus Christ, the ascended, regal, glorified mediator of the people of God, exalted to the right hand of the Father. And it is as the church of God proclaims the word of God that, that concerning the Son of God, that God is pleased then to bless his church. And therefore you can well understand why Paul is so determined to tell the Corinthians, but we preach Christ and him crucified. Now to be sure, he didn't do that mechanically. And he, but he set forth Christ in all the scriptures proclaiming him as prophet, priest, and king. Now, how should we consider, you and I, these opening verses of Acts chapter 1? And as I looked at the passage, I thought, it, this passage really does have a Trinitarian flavor to it. And you may ask yourself, well, what do you mean, David? How is it you see that? Well, it seems to me that that's how Luke wants us to understand these verses. So let me try to show you how, how we see this. We will, in the first place, consider the promise of the Father in verses 4 and 5. The promise of the Father, verses 4 and 5. Secondly, the Son's charge in verses 7 and 8. 
And then in third place, the empowering of the Spirit in verse 8. The promise of the Father, the Son's charge, and the empowering of the Spirit. Well, let's look first of all at the promise of the Father, verse 4. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water. But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. If you turn back a few pages in your Bible to the 14th chapter of John's Gospel, you see there precisely what the Lord Jesus is saying to his apostles. John 14, beginning with verse 15. He said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. Jesus says, for he dwells with you, that is, with you in my presence, and will be in you, that is, as the spirit of the risen, ascended Christ. You find the same thing in chapter 16, as the upper discourse continues in verse 5. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you, it is to your advantage that I go away. For, I do not, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The promise of the Father is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, you may be entering the question, well, what does Jesus mean here? He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Were these men not already in possession of the Holy Spirit? Indeed, they were. After all, you could not be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ without being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But what Jesus is underscoring here is what we might call the dispensational glory of the new thing that God is about to do in sending from his presence the Spirit as the spirit of the now risen, ascended, glorified Christ. John expresses it, I think, quite staggeringly and at first sight somewhat mysteriously in the seventh chapter of his gospel where verse 37 we read, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirst." Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given. Or, or a better translation, the Spirit was not yet 
because Jesus was not yet glorified. And if you, you read that and you think, well, what does that mean? Well, the second verse of the Bible speaks about the Spirit of God. Moreover, the Old Testament is full, packed full of references time and time again to the ministry of the Spirit of God. Take not your Holy Spirit from me, Jesus, or, or David prays in the 11th verse of the 51st Psalm. But what John is concerned to do here in John 7 is precisely the same thing, I think, that the Lord Jesus underscores in Acts chapter 1. To be sure, there is an essential continuity in the covenants, but there is also, and I think it's pivotal for us to understand this, there is also a profound discontinuity. There is something new that comes with the Lord Jesus Christ. So much so that the writer to the Hebrews can speak of the old covenant as obsolete. Now that's a strong word. Obsolete is the language of the writer to the Hebrews. Again, there is essential continuity. But now the Spirit is going to come and is going to be sent in a new way. Up to this point in redemptive history, the Spirit was not yet, as John underscores in his gospel, because Jesus was not yet glorified. But now God has glorified him. And soon he will ascend to the Father and be seated there on the throne of the whole cosmos. And the Father will give to his Son what he promised him in times eternal, would give him in terms of the fulfillment of his mediatorial ministry. He will give him the ends of the earth as his possession. Romans 4 verse 13. And it is to that end from the Father and the Son comes the gift of the Spirit. There is something new happening. But until that new thing happens, you notice what they're commanded to do here by the Lord Jesus, for them to wait. They're not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. And we learn further on in the passage that they will have to wait for some 10 more days. For 40 days, Jesus had been with them since his resurrection. Pentecost will be 10 more days hence. The Feast of Weeks, it's about to take place. They have ten more days to wait. Now I confess that I don't know how it is with you. <laughs> but my own temperament is such that I have always found it difficult to wait. I think it's an admirable trait in people who have the capacity to wait quietly. Because I want things to have happened yesterday. And here Jesus is commanding them to wait, to wait where they are. But it is in waiting that we possess our souls. Waiting time is not wasted time for these disciples. Have you ever noticed later on in the chapter what it is that they're doing during these days of waiting? They're not simply sitting around twiddling their thumbs talking about this or that, but what are they doing? Well, we read in verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. They were praying. 
chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. You can guess what they were doing, praying. Their waiting was not wasted time doing nothing. They waited together upon God. Because one of the great spiritual disciplines is learning to cultivate dependence and trust and faith. By waiting upon God. Isaiah 40 and verse 31. Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. God has made this great promise, but now they have to wait. Now perhaps this is a word in season for some of us here tonight. Because waiting is not easy. But in the waiting, God has disciplines to teach us. Graces to instill within us. And above all, teaching us to trust and depend upon him. So this is the promise of the Father, the gift of the Spirit. But then secondly, there's the Son's charge. You'll notice here as well in verses 7 and 8. Jesus charges his disciples, you'll notice. And it's also a correction to them. We read in verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? I'm laughing because I'm, I remember reading Calvin's comments here on the question of the apostles. <laughs> and he says, there are as many errors in their question as there are words. <laughs> and I think Calvin's right. What Jesus does in verses 7 and 8 is to correct their misunderstanding and to set before them the great commission that he was entrusting to him and to them as his apostles. They needed now to understand that God's kingdom, praise God, God's kingdom transcended the boundaries of Israel. It's beyond Israel. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus then proceeds to inform them that their ministry is going to begin, yes, in Jerusalem. And that it will then extend beyond Israel to all the ends of the earth. In his charge to them to go throughout Jerusalem and into Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus is reaffirming the great purpose of, his, of God's covenant to Abraham. That in Abraham and through Abraham, all nations, all the families of the earth would be blessed. As God declared in the last book of the Old Testament, in the prophecy of Malachi, I believe it's chapter 1, verse 11, he says there, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered in my name and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Now that is nothing short of epic proportions to set before, to set such a global panorama before little Israel with its constricted boundaries. I think... 
This passage, if I may say so, gives dispensational theologians the nervous heebie-jeebies to face such a reality. But here the Lord Jesus Christ, as the risen, exalted king, he makes himself abundantly clear to his apostles that his kingdom will spread and expand. It, it will extend to the end, indeed, to all the nations of the earth it's going to go. If I am able to express anything tonight, let me say this. The great burden, if I can speak this way of the heart of God, is that the ends of the earth will become the possession of his son. That's God's great burden, that the ends of the earth will become the possession of his son. The psalmist sings the words of God in the second psalm to his son. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, he says, and all the ends of the earth your possession. That is the pulse beat of the father's heart. And the son charges his church to go to all the ends of the earth. You see... God had commissioned Israel to be the light to the Gentiles, had he not? Remember Isaiah chapter 49? You were to be a light to the Gentiles. They were to be God's missionary people, but they refused God's call. They were a great deal like Jonah. The last thing Jonah wanted to do was to go to Nineveh. Those uncircumcised, uncircumcised. Covenanted Gentile dogs, Nineveh? What Jew in his right mind wants to go to Nineveh and share the blessings of the covenants with them? But God did. And that was what so enraged the Pharisees against the Lord Jesus. This man. This man, he welcomes sinners. But God's desire and purpose is for the ends of the earth to be subdued in mercy to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to become subjects of his kingdom, which knows no end. Notice what Jesus charges them. You will be my witnesses. What is the great mission of the church of God today? What is the great purpose of the church's calling today? It is to bear witness to Jesus Christ in the world. We're to hold up Jesus Christ. We're to proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to set forth Jesus Christ as the only hope for men and women in life and in death. One of the great things that struck me early on as a young Christian as I was reading through the book of Acts, as I came to the ninth chapter and I read there where the Apostle Paul, as Saul of Tarsus, is so extraordinarily converted to Christ. And then further on in the chapter, we're told he goes, wonder of one, he goes into Damascus. And what does he do when he goes into Damascus? You can envision him saying, You've got to listen to me, what happened on the way here. You'll never believe it. I mean, I, I, was, 
I was on my way to Damascus to arrest Christians, to take them back to Damascus, to Jerusalem. I was breathing threats and murders, and suddenly there was this light from heaven. Now, perhaps there was a place for that, and perhaps Paul did do that. But Luke doesn't mention it. What does Luke record that Paul did? He doesn't record Paul talking about his experience. Luke writes, Acts chapter 9, verse 22, that he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. His whole message was about the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Luke bypasses all that Paul may have said about his experience, and he underscores what Paul wanted the Jews to know, that he wanted them to know who Jesus is. He's the Christ of God. That was his burden. Now, hopefully, we do that out of lives that have been transformed by God in the gospel. We don't speak dispassionately or clinically about the gospel to other people, but we speak to people as people who have tasted and have known and who have experienced the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, the apostles were commissioned in a unique way, but the church as a whole is to bear witness to God's Son, our Savior. You will be my witnesses. And I don't want to make too much of what I'm about to say, but the word here for, for witnesses is martyrs. You will be my martyrs, Jesus says, in a sense, because it would prove costly for them to bear witness to the truth of God in a world that relishes in lies. And we live in a world today that relishes in lies. All you have to do is turn on your TV and you see how the world relishes in lies. To proclaim the holiness of God in a world that is shrouded in darkness and ungodliness, it will become increasingly costly unless God is pleased to step into society. Dear people, if you haven't understood our present dilemma, we are living, you and I, in post-Christian times. We're living in post-Christian times. And we need to understand that it is going to become increasingly costly to bear witness to Christ. It will not be effortlessly and easy. And if it is, then there is something profoundly wrong about our witness to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is called in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5, the faithful witness. And he was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And it will be costly for these men, but he is sending them to the ends of the earth. You remember those touching, powerful words in Isaiah chapter 6, when God in that remarkable theophany, it's actually Jesus Christ, according to John, in the 12th chapter of his gospel. There in the 6th chapter of Isaiah, he reveals himself to Isaiah. And Isaiah is utterly undone in his presence. 
And one of the seraphim flies near to Isaiah, holding with tongs a burning coal, and he touches the lips of God's prophet. And then the Lord says, Whom shall I send and who shall go for us? And the man whose lips have been purged with a burning coal from the altar, he says, Here am I, send me. It's a very dangerous thing, dangerous thing, especially when you're young, to say, Lord, I'm yours to do with as you will. Take me where you will, put me where you will. And perhaps we then begin to think, well, you know, God may be directing me to some far-off place. And we think, Lord, that's a little bit farther <laughs> than I plan to go. I don't know if I can even imagine that. But Jesus said, to the ends of the earth, to the ends of the earth were to go. Who will go for me? Who will go and tell the people who have never heard? Now, it's true in the sense that the Lord Jesus has charged us already. But surely the Lord does place particular burdens upon people's hearts. Who will go for me into the dark places of the world? And there are many dark places in the world all around where we live today. We're living in dark places. But then thirdly and finally, very quickly, we see the empowering of the Spirit as I try to bring this to a quick close. But you will receive power, verse 8, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses. So just as the Holy Spirit enabled and empowered the Lord Jesus in his mission. Do you recall Isaiah 42? Isaiah says, behold my servant whom I uphold. My chosen one in whom my soul delights. God says, I have put my spirit upon him. The Lord Jesus came in our flesh and he was given the spirit without measure. John 3 verse 34. And the same spirit is given to the church to empower us in our mission and our witness. Which is really the mission of Jesus Christ, is it not? And Jesus says to these weak, fragile men, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Please try to consider who these men were that Jesus was addressing. Only a few weeks before, some of them, perhaps most of them, had denied him. All, all deserted and abandoned him. Peter with curses, but they had all failed him. And Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. He is telling them here, in essence, I'm not sending you out alone. I know how frail, how inadequate you are. I know all those things. How fickle, how impulsive, how wavering, how volatile you are. I know all that about you. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. 
And we see this in chapter 2 where Peter stands up at Pentecost and what does he do? The man who had denied Christ with curses before a little servant girl. I don't know him. And yet he preaches. 3,000 people are converted under his preaching. Sociologists today would go crazy trying to explain something like that. Wondering about the nature of the psychosis that took hold of so many people when Peter preached to them. I mean, what kind of hypnotic power did Peter have up his sleeve? The Bible says the Holy Spirit gripped him. It was the work of the Spirit of God. And you don't need to speak with great drama. You don't have to do that. God uses personalities and temperaments that he gives us. And we all differ in temperament and personality. But when words come from the Spirit of God, they come with the power of God. And people were pricked and cut to the heart saying, what must we, what shall we do? Now, dear people, that ought to be a great deal of encouragement to us. It is to me when I think about just how feeble and frail I really am. And as we stand here at the beginning of a new year, the Spirit of God came to the church at Pentecost. We're not looking for another Pentecost. After all, the Spirit has come. There are many hardships, dangers, oppositions, hostilities to unnerve us and frighten us. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You see, the new age dawns with the fulfilling of God's promise to Abraham. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's an interesting phrase, the gates of hell. The gates of a city was where the council would gather. And tonight there is a congress in hell. You can make no mistake. There is a congress in hell seeking ways to undermine and destroy the church of Jesus Christ. But Jesus said, I will build my church and not even the congress of hell will prevail Against it. Our confidence in God is the vaccine against the intimidation of the world. And you and I need to be in tune with the psalmist who sung, Our God is in heaven and does all that he pleases. That's the God in whom we trust. Luke tells us at the end of his gospel that Jesus lifted up his hands and blessed them. It's a picture of the high priest giving the ironic benediction to the people of God. And here is the great high priest leaving his church in the safe hands of his Holy Spirit. And as our great high priest, he returns to heaven on the cloud of God's presence. This is the cloud of the presence of God covering himself in theophonic glory. The cloud was that guided God's people through the wilderness by day and night. The same cloud of God's presence comes and takes up the ascended high priest who continues to bless his church.
from heaven. Jesus said to his disciples, it is to your advantage that I go away. Perhaps we think, wouldn't it be so much better if we were living when Jesus lived? Jesus assures his disciples, it is to their advantage that he goes away because he is going away to give us his spirit. How are we to live, you and I, in the new year? Gazing up into heaven, preoccupied with times and seasons like these apostles, dates and numbers? No. There are two things. There are two things that you and I need to be doing in this new year. Two things. Number one, doing the will of our master. And number two, waiting for his return. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And so we wait, and we, as we wait, we labor. We labor to do his will and to wait for our Lord. May God bless the ministry of this his word to all of us tonight. Let us pray. Oh, Holy Father, we thank you for this inspired account of the theological history of the primitive church. And I pray, Father, that as we work our way through the book of Acts, that you will teach us many, many things. But we pray even more so that you might use it to conform all of us more to the image of our blessed Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.